honesty, being honest with yourself, being honest with your customers, doing the best you can. Every job, every customer, every customer interaction you may have, put it all on the table, come out of your shell, be the person that you want to be. Don't be the person that you're that you're afraid of. But just being transparent with your customers and just setting expectations and doing the best job you possibly can, those are really the keys to success. It's customer care. Um, if you take care of your customers, they're going to take care of you. If you take care of your employees, they're going to take care of you. This is Pittsburgh, a place where a rich heritage of making things and a fierce independent nature come together to create a thriving entrepreneurial community. Whether you're a small business owner looking for ideas or inspiration, or you're an enthusiastic supporter of local businesses, you'll find it here. I'm your host, Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Today, my guest is Matt Dayton. He's the co-owner of Pure Air. Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So to get us started, can you describe Pure Air? Tell us what services you offer and who are your customers? Sure. So Pure Air is a environmental testing and remediation company. We focus in mainly residential. Uh, so our customer base is going to be your average Joe homeowner that has a issue with indoor air quality, whether that be from mold, uh, VOCs, or anything else. Our main focus right now is definitely in the mold remediation and definitely in duct cleaning. More so in the mold remediation than the duct cleaning, but they just so happen to pair up just right. Can you tell us a little bit about how mold remediation works? So what can a customer expect to happen? It's, it's my understanding that you're able to do a lot of this work without a lot of use of chemicals. The, the average person listening may not understand that because they probably think mold remediation, you're going to come in and spray the whole house down. And although you do have those tools, that's not the only way to do it, right? So can you tell us what happens from the time you go in? How does this process actually work? How do you typically remediate the mold without the use of chemicals because you have some other tools at your disposal and maybe give us just a feel for how that works? Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it right on the head. We're able to accomplish this without without a lot of use of chemicals. Um, the misconception is that a lot of homeowners believe you're coming in and circus tending their house, right? So it's the old bug bomb. You know, you're going to put up this giant tent over the house. You're going to release a bug bomb. They got to be out for a, a month or whatever it may be. And it's totally not that. So our typical job is looking like we get a, we get a phone call from a homeowner that's suspicious of a mold problem. Maybe they're going through the real estate transaction. Uh, a home inspector flagged some potential for some mold growth. So we get that call. We will send a salesman out or an inspector out to go take a look. Typically, you know, we're looking at a home for 45 minutes to an hour. We'll go through the problem areas and we'll, we'll identify the mold growth. And then also the most important part is what's causing the mold growth, right? So we can remediate the mold growth, but unless you fix the problem, it's just going to keep reoccurring. So once you have those two things diagnosed, where the issue's at and what's causing the issue, then you can move forward with your remediation plan. So your typical remediation plan, um, let's use a theoretical problem, uh, you know, homeowner calls us, they have mold growing in their basement. The walls are covered in some type of black growth. It's our most typical call. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to isolate off the basement, right? So you're going to hang containment over the basement door. You're going to isolate off to your HVAC unit. The reason we do this is because we do not want what's in the basement contaminating the rest of the home. It may have been thrown off spores here and there, and it may have been going upstairs as it is just a little bit. But when we start remediating, we're going to be extracting all of that off the wall. We don't want that going airborne and going through the rest of the house. 
So once you set up containment, uh, you're going to set up negative air. Negative air is a massive flow of air through a HEPA-filtered air scrubber that puts the area under negative pressure. So it's going to allow good air in and not allow bad air out. It's really crucial to the process. You're not cross-contaminating anything. Once that's all set up, then you go into HEPA vacuuming, uh, removing the bulk spores, uh, maybe some building material removal if it's really decayed and it's just not possible to save that. And then you just go into your your regular wipe down and things of that nature. Typically, you're able to remove 99% of the contamination just through those processes. It's very detailed. It's very you know labor intensive, but most jobs were able to accomplish in one or two days. We do use a disinfectant through an electrostatic you know fogger. We don't like to do that all the time. Uh, we give customers the option. I don't describe it as a necessary piece to the puzzle, but it's kind of like the icing on top of the cake. You know, it just kind of gives that extra layer benefit of protection and just makes sure that the job's even more thorough. But once the job's done, homeowners are able to reoccupy the home. Um, a lot of cases, if we're doing this theoretical job in the basement, the homeowners are able to live right up in the uh, living room and go about their daily life. They don't have to vacate the home. We're not putting up some big circus tent. It's really a smooth transition through their day. And so there's a lot of isolating the space, it sounds like. There's the, using the air itself as a way to cleanse. There's disinfecting if you need to do that as, as, as an extra precaution. There's removing material. That's a big part of this. Mm-hmm. So there's a variety of things that you have at your disposal. And the person, like you said, could be in another part of the home. How often does it take for them to reoccupy maybe that area that you had sealed off temporarily while you were doing the work? Are they coming back same day, next day, couple days, week? How long is that typically? So it depends on the level of contamination. If we're dealing with something um, to where we just removed every wall in the basement, and those are the extreme cases. Most jobs don't end like that. But in those extreme cases, we're going to want to let our air scrubbers run for maybe a day or two to polish the air through the, the HEPA filters and things of that nature. So I would say probably one to two days after we're done. But our typical jobs where we're accomplishing them in one to two days, where there's not a ton of demo, a ton of mold contamination. We're looking at three, four hours Mm -hmm. is really what we're looking at. What's typically the cause for this mold growth in homes? I mean, I would assume it's probably water because I think, you know, you need probably certain things for mold to grow, right? You need water, you need, it's got to feed off of something. It's got to have some sort of a food supply, whatever that is. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, even in some of your worst examples where you see a lot of black mold or a lot of mold in a basement, I would assume it's a, a a wet environment, but what's causing that? And then what are you doing with the homeowner to zero in? Like you said, one of the big things that you do is finding out the cause, the culprit. So what are you doing to zero in on, on the cause and then making sure that you get that moist, damp, nature out of the environment so it doesn't come back. Sure, you're absolutely correct. It's always water, whether it be liquid water coming in through a foundation or high humidity, it's always going to be water. So typically what we see in Pittsburgh basements, right, we're dealing with old foundations, old sandstone foundations. Uh, We also have a high water table in the Pittsburgh area. So even new construction, if the foundations aren't sealed properly, um, that water can make its way in. Once it makes its way in, the issue there is then deciding how to remediate that problem, whether it's an exterior French drain, an interior French drain, or maybe no French drain system at all, and it's just some simple grading or something of that nature. The other big issue that we've come to find in 
a lot of homeowners overlook are actually leaking gutters, overflowing gutters, and downspouts that go into the ground to where the drainage is actually crushed underground. So that water coming off your roof, it's dumping right under your foundation. It's making its way through, and that's when your mold growth starts. So we're paired up with a couple. We're, we're paired up with one big basement waterproofer in Pittsburgh that we're able to refer out um, those jobs to if need be. But a lot of times, homeowners are able to accomplish the waterproofing on their own with some simple grading and some simple outside fixes. The other source you're looking at is attics. It's high humidity, lack of airflow within the attic space. That can be accomplished with some added airflow, maybe some mechanical ventilation through the roof, uh, things of that nature. These problems aren't hard to overcome. It's just figuring out what the key source is and then taking action to correct them. And even though you're not over-relying on chemicals, you're not doing a lot of heavy chemical usage, you do have access to something that you can use. And in particular, you have an exclusive contract with a particular chemical from from a company that you're able to use. I believe you have a, a territory outline that you have access to. Can you tell us a little bit more about that in particular in a sense of, I, I believe it's safety tested and efficacy yes. tested, safe for human use. In other words, can you maybe explain a little bit about that? And then also, how were you able to find this company and, and secure this contract? Sure. So most remediation companies have a basic disinfectant, and we do as well. That's good for a one-time kill. Uh, it's going to be, you apply to the walls, let a 10-minute dwell time, it kills off bacteria, viruses, and mold spores, right? Where we try to differentiate ourselves, or we actually offer a preventative product. Our preventative product, when applied, it lasts indefinitely on low-touch surfaces. On high-touch surfaces, i.e. doorknobs, light switches, things like that, you're looking at six months. That being said, most people aren't rubbing their hands all over their basement walls. They're not rubbing down their rafters in the attic, things of that nature. So it's going to last forever. Once it's there, it's there. It actively is killing off mold, bacteria, and viruses. It is FDA approved. It is EPA registered. Uh, it's a great product. We've used it on, oh God, probably a thousand plus jobs now. And we've had very, very limited negative feedback. Uh, I don't recall a single one. Um, that being said, we came across this product. Um, one of our owners, uh, his father-in-law actually owns a manufacturing company that makes this product. Uh, so we were able to get our hands on it pretty easily. Um, we outlined our territory with it to make sure that we're the only ones in the Pittsburgh area able to provide it. Uh, it is a superior product to what you're able to find off the shelves or maybe on a purveyor online. It's actually picked up by a few pharmaceutical companies that use it in their lab testing. It is a great product and we've applied it to the mold remediation business. And you said it's safer people than if it was FDA approved and it's like an invisible product. So it, you, is. it stays on the walls and the rafters and people is. aren't touching it. But then high touch surfaces, it's, it's going to come off over time. Yeah, it, it is FDA approved for food contact surfaces. You can apply it straight to your countertops, cook your T-bone steak on and have no issues with it. It is EPA registered. Uh, so it's very low on the hazard level for humans. Um, once it breaks down over time, uh, we're talking decades, it turns into silica. It's completely inert. Essentially, it turns into mm -hmm. sand. Now, before you started your company, you worked in the mold remediation space for another employer, but you weren't totally satisfied with what you were experiencing there, with what you saw there. Can you talk about what was going on at the time and what new ideas did you have in order to put your own spin on what you were doing in your own business and to be able to do it differently? What did you see that you could you could do differently than, than what was happening there? Correct. I did work for a, a uh, mold remediation company in the city. Uh, I was their first employee, helped grow out their business. 
throughout my stay with that company, I started to see a very divided line in the type of customer that we were servicing. And it was quite bothersome. We're, we were mainly targeting higher income uh, families and negating lower income families. The price point of the mold remediation was becoming so high that your average Pittsburgh family just could not afford it. What I took from that was there's a whole market space that we could capitalize on and also provide a very valuable service to people in need. So what we've been doing to accomplish this is we've been offering either an extremely discounted job based on income levels, or we've even been donating our time and trying to accomplish between two and four free jobs a month. And we've been working with local charities to accomplish this. And that's really where we differentiate ourselves in the cities. We're trying to bring a more affordable product to the marketplace without losing the efficiency and the effectiveness of the protocol. Yeah. So you're trying to do the two things. You're, you're keeping your quality level up. You're keeping your quality level high, but you're also putting it at a price point that's affordable specifically to those groups that had been underserved in the past, the lower income, even middle income folks that were just not able to afford the higher price service that a lot of the companies cater to. They, they really cater to that, that luxury market. And you saw a need there that you wanted to address. Can you just tell us a little bit about why that's important to you? You're, you're, are you identifying with these folks? Do Absolutely. you see, as I would assume probably also that a lot of these folks are, you know, maybe living in older homes in areas of Pittsburgh where there's a lot of mold problem and they're just underserved. Is that right? It's very easy for me to identify with these people. I grew up dirt poor. I grew up on North, Pittsburgh's north side. I grew up with nothing. Uh, I had mold in my home uh, when I was growing up. I didn't realize what it was. When you're poor and you're struggling just to make ends meet, you don't worry about these things. You know, you don't realize you have the demon in the basement that's affecting your children's health, your health, your mother's health, your father's health. It, it's not something you think about because you're focused on your daily struggles, right? So when I gained this knowledge through the remediation process, uh, you know, learning from this other company, building my own business, it really became like a, a sentimental, you know, adventure for me to help these people out because it is affecting their health. It, it, they're just because, you know, they're in a lower economic stance. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to have this taken care of. It's affecting their health. Yeah. I think as you had said to me before, mold doesn't discriminate, does which is not. a great way to put it. Could you give us an example of somebody that you helped with your service? You know, you've probably had countless customers at this point. I know you've been in the business a long time. And even with Pure Air, you've been, you're going on like four years, I think. Who is somebody that you've helped that you really saw, you know, what, what did you see when you went into their house, first of all? And then how did you address it? And what was the ultimate outcome? So one job really sticks out in my mind. Um, we did a charitable job for a customer over in the Hazelwood neighborhood. Uh, we got a call from a charity. Um, they had turned to a bunch of other remediators. They got turned down by all of them. Us having a soft heart for the people in need, uh, we said, absolutely, let's, let's take a look at it. Let's see what we can do. Day one, we stepped in uh, to this job and the house was filled from floor to ceiling with rotting food, um, stacks of unwashed clothing, um, bugs, mold everywhere. It, it was just a terrible, terrible condition. There was two young children living in this home uh, with one mother. She was a single mother. This all came about because mom lost her job during the very first outbreak of COVID. She lost her job and part of her she lost herself. Uh, she was unable to take care of her household. She had no money. She was struggling on all ends, financially and mentally. Uh, we stepped in, 
volunteered our services. We got about five to six volunteers. We went in, we cleaned out the job. We pretty much disinfected the whole space, scrubbed it top to bottom. By the time we were done, uh, the landlord put in some new flooring and I've never seen a homeowner more happy in my life. And the last time I checked, um, she's doing well. That's great. What what a great story. I'm glad you were able to go in there and help her out. And that's a shame other companies didn't, didn't do that. But it's it's good that you're, you're showing people that are, that are listening to this that there is a way to run a business, to be profitable, and to still serve those in need and do it in the right way. And I think that's, that reputation is going to follow you as far as you, you go with this business. Absolutely. Money's not everything. There has to be you know, a humanistic side to things. Um, there's always going to be a place to make money in this world. There's always going to be jobs that you can make a dollar off of. But when someone's in need and they don't have a way to correct it themselves, somebody has to take care of them. Absolutely. And at the top of this podcast, we talked about you being the co-owner of this business. So you have a couple partners. This is your first business venture, I believe. So when you left your prior employer and you decided to do this, start this company, you had this idea, you went and presented this to your, to your partners. Can you tell us a little bit about how that conversation went? What was their initial reaction? Did they believe in you right away? Did, did you have to convince them? Because you know this was new for you, although the business wasn't really new for you. you. You know this space inside and out, but the idea of being the business owner and actually running it because you're sort of the main operating partner, I believe, uh, of the three of you guys. Tell us a little bit about that. So it was easy and it wasn't easy at the same time. Um, I'm in business with my best friend. Uh, we've been best friends since high school. We played baseball together. It wasn't hard to convince him to come on board with uh, with me. Uh, he knows I've been doing this for a super long time. He was excited. He's been wanting to get into a business of his own. So it's pretty much, hey, just, just trust me on this one. Uh, as far as my other business partners, it was a little bit tougher. A lot of numbers laying out. Um, the theory of, you know, let's bring a more affordable product to the market, um, really honed in on their soft spots, I think made it a little bit easier, but it, it's tough. This is a niche market, right? So not everybody knows that this even exists until you have that problem. So when you're presenting it to serial entrepreneurs or investors, you got to really be thorough and convincing of your theory in the marketplace and where you're going to exceed in the market space itself. And just through just a series of laying out numbers and my experience in the field, um, I was able to gain their trust. And I think within the first three months, I really gained their trust with how fast we took off. Mm -hmm. And it was quite easy after that. Now, you've been in business, as we had said, for four years or going on four years now. What are some of the challenges that you faced in your business so far? And I think one of the challenges you're currently struggling with right now is is staffing. And there's, there's a shortage of people out there. And I know a lot of people that our business owners and have gone through COVID are in the same situation as you. They, they're experiencing the same kind of thing. How are you dealing with this shortage? How do you explain it? What do you think is going on out there? Sure. So our biggest issue with the business right now is not lack of jobs. It's lack of employees. And I think everybody across the board is struggling with this. We've had multiple listings. Um, we've had very few resumes come in. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I, I, part of me thinks that it's a a lack of technical skill out there in the market. Uh, I think a lot of people went the traditional course of going to college and seeking a bachelor's degree and, you know, more of the office vibe. Uh, so we have a big gap 
and people that are actually willing to get dirty and actually willing to put in the effort and willing to help people out. Everybody went to college. Nobody knows these trades. And especially in my field, this is a very niche market. Again, you don't know this exists until you have an issue or you read the Indeed post and you're like, what's this? I don't know if I want to get into this, right? But I think more so it's it's a lack of willingness to swing a hammer. It's a lack of willingness to get out in the field and get dirty. I think a lot of people just decide to go the four-year route and that's it. Yeah. It's not for a lack of pay because your starting pay is good. It's and so it's, it's not, it's not, that's not the issue. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things going on. I know we talked about this before and, and because you yourself went the college route I did. initially, and then you decided to quit because that wasn't right for you. Can you tell us that about that discovery process? You, you, you tried it out, you realized it didn't, it wasn't what you wanted. And, and how did you figure that out? Sure. So everybody that's an owner here up here, as dropped out of college. So for anybody listening, <laughs> college isn't necessary to be successful. It really isn't. Sure, I went to school uh, to be a you know special education teacher. Uh, I got halfway through it and realized that working inside of four walls just wasn't me. Even though it was something that hit home and it hit my soft spot. I have a sister that has Down syndrome. So, you know, being a special education teacher and being able to help these kids really, really resonated with me. And I, you know, I still want to do that in some way, shape or form, but being stuck inside of four walls, following some type of corporate structure, answering to somebody every day, it just wasn't for me. I went out, I found a job. I found a job listing for a reasonable amount of money. I don't want to say it was low, uh, but a reasonable amount of money. Uh, and I was hired as a first employee in this, in in a mold remediation company. And from there, just worked until it came to the point I realized there's a place for me outside of this company. There's a place for me to exceed and grow myself personally. You don't need college to to grow yourself. You, you just really need the work ethic, uh, the idea, and just the willingness to put in the endless hours. Yeah, I think this, I like this discussion for folks listening to this that are looking for alternatives because you know, for many years now in this country, we've gone in the direction of just pushing everybody to college. And, and you know, college is great. It's, it's good for some people. It's right for some people, depending on the profession, the career track that they want. There are certain professions that you need to have Absolutely. the college training. But there's this whole other area, you know, specifically with service work and trade work that doesn't require you to have a college degree. And we are just really not putting a lot of effort into this. We're not, we're forgetting about this. And there used to be a push to trade schools and all of that. And even when I was back in, in high school in the 80s and early 90s, there was a, a push for that. It wasn't a big group, but there was, you know, they did try to help people identify where their strengths were. And if college wasn't a, the right fit, there, there was this other alternative. And I know we still have trade schools out there, but I would like to see a bigger move to helping people fill in these areas because I know as a customer myself, if I need to hire a plumber, if I need to hire an electrician, if I need to hire somebody to, to, to do some work, a lot of times the person showing up at the house is in their 60s or 70s or even older. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's recently we had a, an electrician in our house. I think he was in his late 70s. And I'm every time I, this happens to me, I look and I say, where is the next generation of tradespeople to fill in these jobs? Because when the baby boomers, when they completely retire, Who's coming in the back? Who, who's the next group to come in? And this is, you're, you're a young guy. You're starting this type of uh, service business. You need that next generation yourself. And, and where are they? Good question. I don't think anybody knows. You're right. There used to be a push to get into the trades. You know, we used to have you know, a mechanical shop in every high school, you know, a, a carpentry shop, you know, these different 
trades were implemented in high school so kids could have an alternative to college. We don't have those anymore. We're lacking completely in that. And you're right. My plumber's getting up there in age too. I had an electrician out to my house the other day. He was 66 years old. It's impossible. You, you don't see anybody young anymore. And what needs to happen is there needs to be a shift in your normal American's mentality that college is the only way I'm going to make money. It's not true. You can go out and be a plumber and make $150,000 a year. You can go out to be a, you know, a welder and make $200,000 a year. You can be a carpenter and start out at $21, $22 an hour. You have every means nowadays to control your own fate. And if you want to go out there and make your own destiny, you're able to do it. You don't have to follow the corporate structure. You don't have to go into debt with for college. People just need to get out there and follow what truly makes them happy. And I feel like a lot of people are going to be more happy doing something rewarding with their hands than they would be in an office, but they lose that because that's what culture tells us. You need to go to college. You need to be in this office. If you don't, you're not going to get that $250,000 house. You're not going to get that Mercedes or that BMW. You're not going to get that Ford F-250. And it's just not true, but that's the way culture in America is today. They want you to believe that. And it's just not true. Yeah, this is not a money issue. I mean, there is so much money to be made in the trades and that is certainly not an issue. There's successful plumbers and electricians and welders and people in your field that make, you know, you could be a business owner. You don't need a college degree to be a business owner. I grew up in a small town. We didn't have a lot of money either. And my mother was a business owner. She never went to college. My uncle was a business owner. He never went to college. These were, they were successful. And so it's, it's absolutely possible. It's great for people to know there is another way. And the college debt is crushing. Like you said, there's so many people that are going into college that probably have no business going into college because they don't know what they want to do. They're just told to do it because they don't see another avenue. They don't know that there's these hands-on jobs that you can get into. And like you said, a lot of people will be happier out in the field, really working on a job or with a customer uh, you know, on location and, and they're, they're instead of being cooped up in an office and, you know, I, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding in other parts of the world, like in Europe, for example, they do a much better job in certain countries of helping people to identify what track they should be on. And they're putting people into, you know, engineering and, and service work and trades. And it's, it's sort of a different type of schooling that can happen there versus let's say your traditional, academic or white collar job. And we're, I think we've gotten away from that. And we, we've had in the past, we've had people talking about bringing that back and putting more emphasis on trade schools or even community colleges for that matter, which can be great too. Absolutely. And, you know, because there are some trade oriented things that, you know, I, my opinion, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but a lot of community colleges seem practical in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm sure you could go there too and maybe end up with probably a lot less debt, but maybe end up with a little bit and, 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 and not know what you're going to do with yourself. But there's a lot of practical application that can happen in a place like that. And I think we need to do a better job. So you're, you're a great example of somebody who's done that and you're here, you're a business owner, you're successful, and you're looking for more people to join your company. And so I hope somebody hears this and realizes there's another way to do it. Absolutely. Uh, I do as well. We could definitely use the help. Uh, we're looking to grow. Uh, we have eyes on a second location already in our in our very young company. We're already targeting a second location, but we're unable to accomplish this without the people to come in and work. And we're not looking for anybody that has any particular set of skills. We're willing to train somebody, but we just want ask of somebody to come in, be willing to learn, and give it a hundred percent. And you know, 
just go with us. We're a bunch of like-minded guys. We're young and we can all share the same goals and everybody can go home at night and be happy. And that's all we want from our employees is to be happy and, you know, be able to provide for their families just like we provide for our customers. So when you started this business, you invested some of your own money to get this thing started. And you, you, as we had talked about before, you had said to me before, you put it all on the line and success had to happen. You didn't really have an option. I think you had a young family or a child at the time. Can you take us through that part of when you started? You know, what was taking the risk like for you? And how did you weigh the options in your head of, hey, I'm going to leave this employer and I'm going to do this myself? What were you thinking there just to let us in on on how your mind works? Terrified. Terrified. I put everything on the line. I put every red cent I had into this business and... The deciding factor was, do I want to go work for somebody else or do I want to do something great that I could leave to my son, leave to his children, and leave to their children? And that was really the deciding factor for me. I had an eight-year-old son. I think he was six at the time, five at the time we started this. And um, looking at him made it real easy to decide what I wanted to do. And um, failure wasn't an option, Um, not either for myself, but for these other guys. I was accountable for these other guys' financial success as well as my, you know, son's well-being. So there was no failure. There, that echoed in my mind at 1.30 in the morning when we were designing the website. It echoed in my mind at 4.30 when I was waking up from a three-hour nap to go and talk to real estate agents and prospect jobs and, and network with people and things of that nature. When you have that level of motivation and you go all in on something, you'll find something within yourself that you never knew existed. And I think more people need to take that challenge. Yeah. And it's a big responsibility to be an employer of other people like their livelihood is relying on you and that's a big difference from say being an employee absolutely and not only are you worried about you know providing for your own family but you have to look somebody in the eye and you know know that you're doing what's best for them and their children their family you know your employee may not look at you as family but i look at them as family because if i don't provide the jobs for them to go out and work, then they're not able to make ends meet. And I can't live with myself personally doing that. You know, I can't tell someone, hey, you know, go home on Friday because we don't have nothing to do. No, come in, get hours. Let's do something because, you know, your kid may want to go to a pirate game or something like that. You know, we're all humans. And I really look to take care of the people that are around me and employed by us because it's just the right thing to do. So what are the future plans that you have for Pure Air? You mentioned a few minutes ago, you kind of alluded to, you know, growing that second location and you're here in Western Pennsylvania. Do you want to grow geographically? I'm assuming maybe spreading out from this area, maybe to some other areas. Do you want to grow in terms of services? Is there any, you know, are there any services that you could offer that you're not offering or, you know, or or maybe you're doing a lot of residential, you could be doing more commercial, for example. What are the, what's the future hold and how do you see the company evolving in the coming years? The way we really see Pure Air expanding is we're very analytical. Um, so we have data points for everything, whether it be average age of home, weather, average rainfall amount, your typical, you know, winter weather conditions, temperature, things of that nature. Um, so we're really targeting uh, cities that match that Pittsburgh-esque location because Pittsburgh's a hotbed for mold. So there's other areas that are going to be hotbeds for mold as well. Uh, you know, there's a few places in Ohio that mimic us, a few places down south. Um, as you get west, they become a little bit less and less. Once you go over the Rocky Mountains, it gets a little bit drier. But there's areas that you can you can target. And really what we're looking to do is keep everything corporate out and not franchise out. We believe that when you franchise things out, you lose control 
you lose quality. Um, it's essentially the McDonald's theory. You know, when you when you franchise out, you know, you you lose that total control. You know, you think you're selling hamburgers, but they're selling chicken wings. You know, <laughs> you just totally lose everything. And if we grow, when we grow, and no matter how big we grow, we want to always keep the best product for the best price and provide the best service that we can no matter the circumstance. Yeah, we've all been customers of places and and that have either turned into a chain or maybe we were fans of a place when it was small, even though it was a chain. And then all of a sudden it, it just blew up and you could see the quality drops off, the customer service drops off. We've all experienced that, right? I can think of countless examples and so could probably anybody listening. So I like that idea of of not franchising and keeping it all within your company so you can expand Maybe you won't expand as a lot of people do franchising because you could do it fast. So, yeah, you maybe you won't be as fast, but you'll you'll have the higher quality. You'll have more control over what you're doing. You can get you can pick and choose the areas you want to be in, and you could do it in a in a methodical way and grow into it as opposed to growing too fast. Right, and nothing fast is good. Not anything fast is never a good thing. Uh, you lose sight of the end goal. And you're right. We we want to keep the quality up. We want to have control over everything. We want to have our say be the governing word of the land. Um, we're not looking to take over every marketplace in the country. It's just impossible. It's just not doable. But what we're looking to do is pick out a few cities that need this type of work and provide our service and excel in those areas so that our name is matched up with this high-end product. But people also realize, hey, we're not trying to break your bank. Yeah. Yeah. Fast growth is typically, I think, the, if not the number one cause, but close to it of business failure, small business failures. People trying to grow too fast. They they have all these needs all of a sudden, and it could really put you on the brink sure. of disaster. Anybody that's listening that's had been in that scenario knows what I'm talking about. You suddenly have this never-ending need for more money yep. to be able to feed the growth. And then you're it's sort of like, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. You can never keep up or catch up with it. Absolutely. And, and it just can be devastating. People think growth is good, but it could be devastating if you're not prepared for it. It's, it you're right. It, it, it's all about preparing and it's hard to plan for that exponential growth, right? So when you sit down, you, you grow out a business plan, you take it year by year by year. You don't expect on year one to accomplish what you had laid out in year three. And if you're there, then you have some serious on the fly type of, you know, decision making to be done. And those aren't always the best decisions. You're, you're probably going to have a better success rate at the uh, blackjack table down at the rivers <laughs> um, than you are making those decisions on the fly. But the name of the game is plan out ahead, take it slow, take the growth as it comes. You can certainly speed things up as it goes, but you better have a plan for when that, that, that picks up for you. Matt, as we wrap up, what words of advice would you like to leave with other entrepreneurs, small business owners who are listening to this right now? You've learned. You've learned a lot over the four plus years or around four years that you've been doing this. Plus, you've been in the business, been in the industry a lot longer than that. But as a business owner, you've learned a lot. You've you've started this as your first venture from scratch. You've done it with partners. So you have that experience. A lot of people start businesses and and don't have that experience. So some of your your of what you've what you know and what you could tell us has to do with managing the relationships with partners growing a business, doing it in the right way, as we had said earlier, you know, not just being in it for the buck, but really trying to do the right thing, especially for those underserved customers out there, offering them a product that they can relate to. What comes to mind that, that from your journey so far that you could just share with us? Honesty, being honest with yourself, 
being honest with your customers, doing the best you can. Every job, every customer, every customer interaction you may have, put it all on the table, come out of your shell, be the person that you want to be. Don't be the person that you're that you're afraid of. Come out of your shell. Really explore yourself. You know, don't be afraid to network. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Get out there and meet people. But ultimately, it's being honest. You know, coming from a previous company to what we're doing now, honesty is number one. They did a great job at being honest. I think we do an even better job. But just being transparent with your customers and just setting expectations and doing the best job you possibly can, those are really the keys to success. It's customer care. Um, if you take care of your customers, they're going to take care of you. If you take care of your employees, they're going to take care of you. Yeah, because the kind of work you're doing is something where, I mean, honesty should be important to all businesses, of course, but the kind of work you're doing with customers is especially sensitive because you're dealing with mold. You're going into people's houses. This is where people, this is where people live. This is, this is their home, right? I mean, it's a sacred place for them. And they have this scary thing happening. Maybe it's happening in the basement. Maybe it's in the attic. Maybe it's in another part of the house, this mold issue. And you're going in and you're going to, to help mitigate that and take care of that and make the house habitable safely again. And honesty is so important in that context because they're trusting you. They're trusting your staff to come in and be able to do this job and to take care of them, right? So I'd love your answer because it's just so important. I mean, again, for every business, we should all, we should be that way no matter what we're doing, but you're dealing with something that's specifically sensitive and they're at a vulnerable place, right? When they're calling you, because usually, like you said, most people don't think about your type of work unless they need it. And then when they need it, it's dire straits, right? It and is. they're worried about the cost too, like can I actually afford this? So I think that you're, you know, it's just so spot on what, what you said. And I think honesty is just so important for what you do. Absolutely. It's just the way to be. Um, we go into people's houses that are dealing with, you know, not only the fear in the basement or the fear in the attic, but they're also, we deal with a lot of people that are actually genuinely sick from this. And when you're able, you're not able to go into your home and relax after a hard day's work, you know, you're right. Your home's your sanctuary. If you're not able to go home and relax, what quality of life do you have? So we see people that are just beaten down and being able to be honest and go in and take care of them and see the outcome, it's just the most rewarding thing on the face of the earth. Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Appreciate having you on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do me and the Pittsburgh small business community a huge favor by giving it a rating on your favorite podcast app. It really helps others to find the show so that we can continue to build our community. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you know someone who should be on the podcast or you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at proprietorsofpittsburgh.com or at 412-336-8247. I'm Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh Podcast. Take care.